Welcome back to Audio Diaspora, which is a series of conversations with creators and thinkers across the diaspora who are leaning into their roots to create more new, wonderful, thriving spaces for all of us. I'm your host, Christabel Insiabwadi. On today's show, we're taking the mic to Maine. We are speaking to Dr. Tari A. Pickens. She is an academic and professor who's teaching English at Bates College. She's also the founder of Inquiry Editing, LLC. And I mentioned that she's an author. Her latest book, which came out in 2019, is called, and I'm pausing here because it's actually a tongue twister and I think it's very appropriate because it's going to twist our minds in the best way as well, is Black Madness, Mad Blackness. Say that three times. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I could barely say it once. Now, the book looks at disability and blackness, and it's a deep dive into how the necessity of black labor led to a structure of ableism. Mm -hmm. Dr. Pickens, thank you so much for joining us on yeah, Audio me. Diaspora. I have so <laughs> many questions. First of all, tell us more about the book, and then I'm going to do this in reverse. Tell us about the book which is yes. really, really important. It's going to get to the heart of our conversation. And then we'll mm -hmm. talk about the title, which I think is, I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> thank you. Yes. So thank you so much for having me. Um, the book is, you know, someone asked me the other day how I came to this, how I came to these topics. And I was, I just told them they're interesting, right? It is interesting to think about blackness and disability together. It's interesting to think about how they, as two fields of study, Black studies and disability studies can come together intellectually, um, but also to think about how Black disabled folks exist in the world and what structures kind of confine them, what their liberation looks like, and how it is possible for us to make space for them. So I take very seriously Kimberly Crenshaw's ideas in her um, coining of the term intersectionality so she coins it in a law review article where she's talking about the ways that the law does not make room for Black women, the ways that it cannot protect them, the way it's not designed to do that. And so thinking about the ways that Blackness and disability, uh, you know, and the law in the United States doesn't make room for them, but also thinking about the ways that people make room for themselves uh, and what it looks like to put those two identities together um, and also to think about uh, creative production. Um, I'm also doing something there with taking very seriously artists and creatives in their provocations. So the tendency in the academy is to kind of invisibilize the critics, right? That you drop quotations in without like telling us where they came from and all the work is in the footnotes and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, but the critics are not doing what they need to do. Like the, the vibe is not vibing with the critics. <laughs> the vibe is not vibing. It's not. And, and, or it wasn't, I guess, until I put them together. Yeah. Until you and changed so that. I, yeah. I did. I did. I tried to change it. Um, and so there's, there's a structure to it. The first thing is that there are no chapters. They're called conversations. Um, and within the conversations, I tell folks, we're going to talk about what critics are doing and not doing. Um, and we're going to frame, the critics as the ones in need of rescue um, and that the artists are the ones who are doing the deep thinking on this. The artists are the ones who are imagining other worlds and, you know, telling us what liberation looks like and showcasing what it, what it can not look like in all of its cruelty. Um, 
And then also the artists make the space for joy, right? So asking uh, critics, literary theorists to take themselves out the way a little bit and just let the, let the artists rock. Right. So. Okay. My, my brain is kind of exploding in 10 different <laughs> ways. And it was, it was before we did the show just with the title. Right. Mm. But what you're saying, okay. So a lot of what I talk about with the guests is about changing the narrative. Mm. And you are one of few guests who've literally, you've not changed the narrative. You've literally turned it on its head and you you either heard me if you're listening and if you're watching this, you would have seen me pull a face like, ooh, when <laughs> Dr. Pickens was talking about critics being the ones in need of saving. Because as you said that, I immediately thought to myself, oh my goodness, you've completely expanded. In doing that, you've challenged me to expand the way I think about engaging with text, engaging with creativity, because I guess in some, you don't realize subconsciously you recognize we put so much power on the critics, but ultimately they are gatekeepers and they're telling us if our work is worthy or if it's yeah. right or if it's wrong, which really gets to the heart of if you're a creative in this, a black creative specifically in this world where the world has told you your story doesn't matter. That's critics saying, ultimately telling us what stories matter and what stories don't. And so mm -hmm. in that minute, what I'm thinking is, well, your work is, cutting that off at the knees essentially and saying look at it differently you're turning it on its head right yeah that's the point i mean I, on in literary studies the critics are the arbiters of what constitutes literature so the fact mm. that a lot of critics don't talk about ya literature or romance novels um or take seriously things like mystery novels everything has to be kind of literary fiction written by a select few and i think even those select few get their um their influences and their ideas from so many different places. So I think part of it was that I was a burgeoning creative, like someone who was trying to begin to write poetry very seriously. And also just as a critic felt stymied by having to pay attention to what everyone else has written that year. Yes. Oh my um, gosh. And not really wanting to be governed by where the trends were going in the, in the kind of thought ether of the Academy but wanting to just kind of follow where the creatives were because they were doing something much more interesting than the critics or being something much more complicated. Right now I'm thinking about like Andre 3000's new album and how like mm -hmm. no one expected him to do this. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> I'm thinking also of someone like uh, Talia Hibbert, who's a romance novelist based in the UK and how her work is so complicated and so rich and how whenever I say I'm reading romance novels, people kind of, mm, I guess that's for mm -hmm. fun. I'm like, oh, it's actually quite complicated. She's doing really interesting stuff with disability, with blackness, with, um, oh gosh, with class. There's a, um, there's a audio book read by uh, uh, Adria Ando. Mm -hmm. And it is so good. It's spicy too. So it's hitting Adria. We love spice. <laughs> Hearing Adra Endo do like a all of the all the spicy scenes, I was like, "Oh, I will never hear Bridgerton the same way again." <laughs> What's the name of that? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> oh, uh, anything by Tally Hibbert, but it's the Brown Sisters trilogy. Only the first one is narrated by uh, uh, Adra Endo, but the 
the other two are really narrated quite well and it is escaping me. I'm so sorry to that, um, to the person who does that narration, but that person is really quite good as well. I don't like, I'm, I'm so excited about this and I know that all of this we will, we will, and I'm, I'm not deprioritizing the work around disability because I think it's really, I think it's connected, but, but I want to stay here for a second. But what you have done in terms of talking about this is your, you have liberated that idea of creativity because again as you're I, I often think like I've been in writing classes where I said well you know what you're writing isn't literary like it's you know go over for the literary and and I think there are a lot of people out there who are who might be thinking well my stuff isn't literary whatever that means right after they've right. looked in the dictionary to see what that definition is and they've gone well that's not what I'm doing so I'm not a writer but immediately as you talked right you know I I have a reputation as someone who is can, can be quite academic, but the things that drive me, and it's part of the reason why I do this show, are those romance novels, are yeah. all of those things that you talked about, because it's like, it's it's fun. It's the world that we live in. And to me, I'm like, we need to place a lot more value on that, because like you said, that stuff that isn't deemed literary is actually the stuff that is really complex and really speaks to the world that we live in, in a creative and artistic way. And I'm trying to get to the heart of that. So I'm, I'm excited to be speaking with you because ultimately I'm like, well, you're the expert in this. So <laughs> what is, what, what was your takeaway from the research that you did? Like, what would you tell the listener who's like, well, I can't write, or, you know, my stuff doesn't sound like public media or, you know, I'm not the expert and, 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 cause that's the concept that I constantly push away from. You are the expert because you yeah. live it. So what's yeah. your takeaway from the work you've done in your book, Black Madness, Mad Blackness? Yeah, I think my takeaway is a kind of fundamental disposition of curiosity toward the rest of the world taking very seriously the fact that I live as a Black disabled woman in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and the turning things on their head is very much about kind of what it is to live with disability, what it is to approach the world that's not built for you, mm -hmm. um, either because of, well, not either, but because of race, class, disability, gender, sexuality, um, any, any of those things. Um, and... I think that curiosity forces me to take very seriously my life experience and mm. also to not dismiss my life experience, even as I seek knowledge and skill sets that don't come from my life experience. So I am really learning at this point in my life to trust myself when it comes to being a writer. And that's just, it's a hard lesson. It's one I think you have to learn with each project. Um, and so as I'm learning that, the issue that keeps coming up for me is what am I bringing to the table and how can I honor that, take that very seriously and, and work from there. But also as I learn new skills and as I gain new knowledges, how can I also take that seriously and incorporate it and shift it in ways that it works not just for me, but I, and I think this speaks to uh, folks in the global majority, because because we think about community, right? How yeah, it works do. for me and us, right? Yes. Um, so there's some stuff that's just for me. Um, and then there's some stuff that if I'm going to share it, it's got to be for us, right? Yes. Um, so there's, there's that too. I think that's the biggest takeaway, that curiosity and that honoring and pushing forward 
right? Because like being a creative is hard. Oh my we gosh. feel everything. Everything. We feel it, and then we got to talk about it. We got to express it. We it's all it's all of that. We don't wanna exactly. <laughs> but if we do, then we're like, oh, it was too much. I, I also hear in what you're saying, uh, and people talk about this a lot but I think you said it differently. It's about centering yourself, but in order, centering you in the story, but in order to center yourself, you can't do it within these contracts, constructs. You've got to expand it. Hence you turning it upside down and saying, now let's look at it different. And really what I'm hearing from you is just like, have permission to read all the things because there's so much beautiful stuff out there that, that speaks to all of our all of our um, identities, yeah. essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. speaking about that narrative of, of blackness, and you you touched on that a little bit, right? Let, we we then have to expand what that means in terms of the whole black person, right? We all have our thing, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just being a black woman or a black man. It's not about gender. It's not about sexuality. It's not about who you love. It's not about all of that. It's all of the things. So. I'm let's expand on on the ways in which we have invisibilized disability or abilities right because we all have different ranges of ability so I'd love for you to to speak on that too yeah so um I'm at the beginning of some new research on being black and British um mm-hmm. and so that's part of the reason <laughs> Talk why to I'm the right person then come on then <laughs> yes I will I will contact you offline um so mm-hmm. um that's part of the reason why I'm particularly interested in Talia Hibbert um, right now, but also folks like Afua Hirsch and um, David Olusuga and uh, the podcasters who did the Black British Lives Matter podcast. Um, uh-huh. So in thinking about that and thinking about the history of Blackness in the UK, history of Blackness in the US, Black folks were brought to these spaces for uh-huh. labor. <laughs> so you have the transatlantic slave trade that forces black folks from their space, their indigenous lands, mm-hmm. to do textile work in the north and agricultural work in the south of the US. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at some point, the US opens its borders to black folks from the Caribbean with the caveat that they be able to speak English. And so it's only open mm-hmm. to a certain class of black folks and certain uh space spaces in the caribbean where folks already have education and Uh so they are the um i guess secondary immigrants to the u.s if you will these are not my ideas i got them from uh deron wallace who's a sociologist um and his point is that part of the reason why the stereotype for caribbeans in the u.s is that they work harder than black americans is because of the structures, the the state structures that sponsored their arrival and also governed what kind of work they were capable of doing when they got here. All right. And the same Hold on. Hold on. Pause. Pause. (laughs) Sorry. You are saying that there was value put on someone's Mm. physical ability. So that is the step. You're talking physical about, right? intellectual ability. Got mm-hmm. you. Not to interrupt, but I was like, just so that mm. people in the back can hear what you're saying. Yes, that's absolutely. What you said. Yes. Mm. And then in the UK, when people were allowed to immigrate, right? Um, the first set of immigrants are Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And then the second set of immigrants are from the continent of Africa. 
And as a result, the narrative in the UK is that people of Caribbean descent aren't the ones that work hard. And the ones of African descent. The lower class. The lower class. class Because the Africans typically came for education as opposed to cleaning up the country after World War II. Don't get me started. Exactly. And so those two narratives are state-sponsored narratives, state-architected narratives around labor and around what kinds of Blacknesses do what kinds of labor. Never minding that the understanding of Blackness prior to uh, World War II and after the abolishment of enslavement in the U.S., was a Black inability, intellectual and physical inability. In the U.S., the idea post-slavery was that Black folks would wither and die without white supervision until Jesse Owens wins in the Olympics in the 30s. And everyone's like, oh, well, they might be physically powerful, but still intellectually. <laughs> so, so, the fact, so, so the fact that African-Americans built the country like, was not an indicator <laughs> that I mean, Black it, folk might be uh, powerful. There's a really beautiful book by Paisley Rechtal called West, a translation where she looks at all of the ways that the railroad was constructed. Mm-hmm. And she looks at indigenous folks, Chinese laborers, black folks. And the fact that all of that labor creates the U.S. West mm-hmm. and all of those folks are understood as not hardworking. I'm like, there's a there's a there there. <laughs> there is a there. Can we find the there? <laughs> It's called racism, called white supremacy by another name. <laughs> they cousins, right? Like, <laughs> is that so? Yes, <laughs> they are cousins. Um, and it's it's wild to me that all of that, all of the understanding of blackness, is built on the this issue of labor and capability, and so disability becomes sort of anathema to blackness. And part of the part of the way that it becomes so is that black folks don't want to claim it in part mm-hmm. because it compromises, quote unquote, freedom, freedom struggles. Most people make their case for freedom struggles on the backs of disabled people. We're not feeble minded. We work hard. We do this, this sort of rights based. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, this rights based rights based discourse. And so disability becomes the the other other that makes others possible. Um, And so that discourse is embedded in notions of Blackness. And in that way, people often forget how uh, Black thinkers in the early 20th century, um, even in the 19th century, are wrestling with disability. They understand it as a discourse. They understand how to manipulate it. They understand why it is inappropriate to think about disability in terms of objection. Um, But the discourse is so powerful. The desire for able-bodiedness is so powerful that Black people with disabilities get erased, even as they're also being created. So you've got the Tuskegee experiment from uh, 1930 to about 1972, where Black men in the South of the U.S. were injected with syphilis and, and not cured. Uh, it was The disease was allowed to run its course. And it was an open secret in the medical community that this was happened, and it was state-sponsored. You've also got 
uh, all of the ways that black folks in uh, it, black folks and poor white folks in industrial spaces were forced to work in unsafe conditions, etc. Um, and this idea of superability for black women, which then kind of cowed uh, our backs, uh, essentially, um, as we were also doing domestic work and other forms of work. Um, so all of this allows for a space where Black disabled people are not quite left out of civil rights uh, discourse, but not quite included either. Um, Mm. And you end up with a kind of historical erasure of the ways that Black disabled people have quite literally changed the world. Guys, you're listening to Audio Diaspora. It's that brand new name of the show that you knew as the cipher, Audio Diaspora. You're listening to that with me, Christabel in Silkwadi. I am so excited about this change. Just lots of change coming. So as you can tell, I'm excited about everything that is ahead. You know, I mean, I'm I'm out here trying to rewrite history. You know, just a little a little side project. <laughs> a, little, a little side project. You know, for those of project. us who, <laughs> for those of us, the rest of the world, like. I would give it like tell tell us some of those heroes that who've been erased from history, seeing as you are changing the world. <laughs> For those of us so, who don't know, because to the to the point of of being erased, people don't know, or people mm. might not may not even understand. Like I actually want to take actually I want to take it a step back. I want us to be mindful and aware of the language that you said that people yeah. wrestled in the early days. Like, can you give specific examples because? For those of us who are so unaware of it, like I want us to be mindful of what that sounds like and looks like. Can you give some of yeah. those examples? Yeah. So in terms of black dis- disabled heroes, I would just point, I would point to someone like Harriet Tubman who was mm. kicked in the head mm-hmm. um, by a horse and then had uh, dreams or visions. That's she right. thought she was coming from God um, and other people just, you know, she had a head injury, disabling mm-hmm. head injury, faint um, spells and, and whatnot. Um, Can we pause there? Can we pause there for a second? I'm sorry. I'm really glad you said that because, yes, even in the narrative of Harriet Tubman, that's not how it's framed Mm -mm. at all, which when you stop to think about it, especially within the context of what you said, I'm like, that's utter madness. She got we all know she got kicked in the head. We all know she was severely injured, but Mm -hmm. it was it's never been described as. As a disability, which is what it was, and she's a hero. But she did that with the disability. And rather than being like, she she did that in mm-hmm. all of her fullness, they were like, she got kicked in the head. But hey, Underground Railroad, here we are, the end. Right. It's right. wild, actually, it the is. more I think about it. And you also like the <laughs> Black blind musicians. So there's uh-huh. a long history. Uh, blind Boys of Alabama. Yes. Um, blind Tom, Stevie Wonder, Ray mm-hmm. Charles. There's a bunch, right? Um, Even uh, Joe Capers, who was a producer out of Oakland in the late 80s, early 90s, he kind of gives us early uh, hip-hop, like not early um, hip-hop, late 80s, early 90s uh, Oakland-based hip-hop sound, which is so recognizable. Digital Underground, MC Hammer, Yo-Yo, all those folks were, you know, produced by him. Um, So there's a whole bunch of folks uh and also just kind of thinking about literature Toni Morrison uh later in her life uh dealt with disability just looking at my bookshelf 
over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, Octavia E. Butler, um, mm-hmm. who has like the bunch, Alice Walker. Um, wow, so just so like literally, literally people in pop culture, which goes mm-hmm. back to what you're saying. Like for me, it's like pop culture is critical. People like don't don't wave that stuff away and belittle it because it it really speaks to where we are. But all of these heroes and people in pop culture, we've just <laughs> ignored. We've overlooked. We have willfully just gone la 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 to the, the 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 full the fullness of who these these individuals were and who they are, which spoke right. to the, it, the work that they produced. And I think on some level, people reach toward an overcoming narrative for these folks. They're like, "Oh, you you've done everything you've done in spite of your disability." And I think what folks don't realize is that Alice Walker's attention in her text to sound and color and texture and music. Um, is partially because of how she perceives the world as someone who has ocular impairment. Um, If you think about um, the kind of 3D renderings that you get in Octavia Butler's work, that is partly the way that her mind works in terms of dyslexia. Stevie Wonder's attention to the very minutia, the details of music, um, is in part because of his blindness. And not because he has sort of superhuman hearing because of his blindness, but because his attention to detail is fomented based on his experience as a blind person, right? And so this, um, these narratives that we reach for, and this goes back to your question about like what the language looks like, we reach for the narratives that talk about overcoming, Mm. right? Um, And we reach for the narratives that say, oh, you're over that now or you're not dealing with that, right? We reach for those narratives. And in fact, I think disability is actually the space of creativity. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a revolutionary space of creativity because when the world's not built for you, you have to live in it anyway. You have to create a world that's safe for you. Um, And so when it comes to the language, the way that Black folks in um, in the antebellum period in the U.S. deal with this So there's a man named David Walker. He writes a speech that is completely inflammatory uh, for white slaveholders. It calls them terrible Christians. It's like he's writing this in like the 1830s. (laughs) And he knows that most people are not literate. And so he's got these little hands in the text kind of pointing to the spaces, the, the things that need to be read with volume or the things that need to be emphasized. So the text is not just read to be, uh, not just written to be read, but written to be spoken and it is only his understanding of the social disability of illiteracy that he is capable of producing such a document. James Weldon Johnson, um, also black and from the U.S., uh, widely known, I think, as uh, one of the composers of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which we call also the Negro National Anthem. He uh, writes an autobiography and in that autobiography, he talks about the disabilities of the color line. Um, That is all of these disabilities created as a result of white supremacy at work in Jim Crow U.S. Um, Disabilities like uh, poor health outcomes, which we still consistently see with the um, with an increase in asthma in places where there's uh, people living on top of each other, uh, cancer alley in the U.S., all of those Um, ways that things like redlining and uh, housing discrimination create disability. Um, The fact that Serena Williams nearly died in childbirth 
is also an instance of disability at work, right? Um, And she talked about her health and she talked about her class. Um, And I think that um, folks in the disability study space were thinking about the ways that they could figure out how to get her to talk about disability. Um, Mm. In part because even as a world-class athlete, she still has to deal with this particular health issue. But she was not believed because of the confluence of super ability, black womanhood and class, right? That even she wouldn't know her own body. And I'm like, of all of the people to know. She, yeah, she, it really should she be knows. her. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> and when, when I hear you say that, I immediately, I think about uh, how in us invisibilizing, I can't say that word, so I hope I got it right. Invisibilizing got disability. It. I love that. We we put ourselves in danger because we, we, we play down the exhaustion. We play down the stress. We play down. I lost someone very, very close to me. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize at the time, but, but as I think about it, I'm like stress, silent killer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because of all these things that you, you talk about, all of these parts of, of black identities where we work and work and work and work for whatever reason that is. And so you just honestly this conversation you've just reminded me to just continue to expand not even expand actually include right I I say expand Mm -hmm. because it's it's about the bigness of it all and so that's what we should embrace as opposed to like put it in a bucket um and so yeah like it's just it's just you just you've made me turn it on its head and say nope just expand the thing and just understand that there are ways in which we are all you know at the start of this conversation I said you know we all have our something and you 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 very explicitly said there are disabilities that look different in different ways because we, yeah. as a society, we stigmatize it. Right. So, you know, like disabilities look different. It's not just invisible and visible. It's in all ways. And when you don't acknowledge it, this is what I'm hearing. You, 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 you effectively reduce the importance of it in terms of your creativity. Cause when you find a way you create new genius, number one, right. and also from a health, from a health perspective, if you ignore it, it's going to be detrimental to you. Yeah. And I I think, yeah, I think it's also a a clarity about what that disability allows you to do. Yes. Oh, hold on. Say that again. What that disability (laughs) allows you to do, because we always think of it so small, but it's not, it allows you to do stuff. Yeah. It's not a limitation. All right. So like, if you're thinking about someone with dyslexia, they see things in 3d. That's why their P's and mm. B's and D's get all mixed up because they're looking at them in a 360 often. And so can you know what kind of architect that person would be being able to see things in 3D? Like it just, it seems amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then folks with autism, depending on the kind of autism, um, you know, one can have an attention to texture or smell or sight or um, their understanding of how they think things should be done. Um and so people often think about that as a limitation because they think that person does can't accommodate the rest of the world, that their world has to be so small. But in reality, what a lot of folks with autism have is the particular attention to details of feeling and details of being mm-hmm. that other people ignore to their own detriment. And so... I'm thinking about folks who, 
you know, are incredibly detail oriented, right? In whatever is uh, their area of specialty or interest. And then I'm thinking about the people whose autism presents as sort of flightiness, right? Or perfectionism. And uh, those folks are often just more stymied by the ways that people don't allow their creativity to, to flourish. Mm. Right? Um, and because we don't often have a vocabulary to talk about disability as generative or liberatory, we end up with folks who are, you know, thinking of themselves as limited when in yeah. reality, they just haven't been given the space to, to create, to do so there you go with that theme of like it's you not me aka it's the critics it's not the creators. no I, yes. I love that I love that though so let's let's uh talk about the title as briefly I love it I told you I was obsessed with it black madness mad blackness mercy I can't say it. black madness mad blackness where yes. did that come from because it evokes something to me that I'm not sure you meant but you're you're a writer so you knew it would yeah so I got tired of so when I told you I was working on something on black madness yeah. and on on madness and blackness because that's the way I used to introduce it um they would ask me something along the lines of isn't that the same thing right aren't aren't those two similar and no jokingly they would ask that and I would get pissed like and I guess it's the American version of pissed as opposed to the British version of this but um I was so angry because there was a discourse that suggested that the two were the same. Um, and then also as a devout child of the nineties, I remember downtown Julie Brown. Yes. Um, yes. And her, all of us, we use the word mad as a synonym for very. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am mad black right now. Right. And I just wanted all of that to come together. And so I needed the noun. Um, and I needed the um and I needed the adjective. I needed the, right. the noun mad and the uh the noun the noun madness and the adjective mad. Um uh I needed and also the noun mad. I needed the the noun blackness, <laughs> the adjective blackness. Um and oh. the noun black and the adjective black. I needed all of those together. And then there was this issue of that double colon, because that's the third kind of word mm-hmm. of the title. And I thought about the SATs, which is a standardized test that folks have to take uh, to get, or used to have to take to get into uh, colleges in the U.S. And um, they had these analogies right? Apple is to orange as blank is to blank. And there were these double colons. And I was like, okay, people want to tell me these two are similar. I'm going to mess with the grammar of the analogy. And so there the double colons sat. Um, and that's how the title came to be. All of these things kind of swirled. Um, mm-hmm. And I started playing around uh, with, with writing it and thought, okay, this will work. You are so incredibly <laughs> playful. I'm here for it. Now, Thank all you. of that work, I see, I feel it tying into, you know, the work that you do at Inquiry Editing, right? In terms of like helping mm. people develop their voice. Because again, if you're a creator in a world that's telling you that your voice doesn't matter, a lot of people are stymied. So I would mm. assume that's the work that you do um, um, 
through your I wish company, it were right? More, yeah, I wish it were more of that. Uh, partially the work that I do there is um, editing academic manuscripts. Um, so I edit, I do, I have four services. So I do line editing when something is kind of ready, but the person doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily like what it sounds like. I do developmental edit, kind of getting them thinking about their through line, their structure. Um, and I do manuscript review. If someone just isn't quite sure where their manuscript is, I take a look and say, this is what I see. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I do sensitivity reads for folks who are doing creative Uh work. Um, who don't hold particular identities, blackness, uh, woman, disability, um, and or a confluence of those things. What would a poor black character uh, do here that would be realistic as opposed mm. to being a crutch for a white character, right? Like what, right. what how can I make this um, better in terms of the writing, right? So I do sensitivity right. reads in that way. I would love to work with more fiction authors, Um And also I find it really rewarding to help folks just kind of discover what they're saying. Um, Yeah. Yeah. People like (laughs) they come to me and they say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing and I don't know what I'm doing. And then I ask them, well, tell me what you're doing. And then I reflect it back to them and they're like, you said something different. I'm like, no, I said what you said. Yeah. Just you heard it. Right, right, right. You just heard what you said in a different voice. We do very right. similar work in that sense, but it's so much joy in all of that. I mean, I'm not going to ask you any more questions in that because that's another conversation or maybe that's yes. offline because there's so <laughs> so much work to do in that. Sadly, we've got to wrap up um, because mm-hmm. we're short on time. What is next for you and where can we support and check out your work? Yes, so... Um... I have a poetry manuscript that is under review, um, and I'm hoping that it gets published sometime next year. And I am working on, uh, at the very least, a course on Black British literature and another course on Arab British literature. Um, And so I am hoping that at some point I get across the pond uh, to do something other than like... (laughs) take one I took one cab ride around London that was it no 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 you can't do that where you go call me and I'll be like let me help you out I will (laughs) I will I was in Liverpool for a conference and so you know the Scouse accent just kind of lives rent free in my head um but (laughs) and it was a good time I just I need to get back to the UK to just spend some time with with my other people right like you do with the cousins you do yes, need to spend some time with, with cousins <laughs> and I would I I am obsessed with black British literature obviously from a very personal perspective yes. I look forward to us talking about your yes. course offline Absolutely. and maybe we can we can update people when if and when we're able to on that I would yes. love to to talk to you about that Dr. Therese A. Pickens author of mm-hmm. Black Madness mad blackness you heard the pause because I was like I'm gonna get it I'm gonna get it in one take (laughs) thank you so much for joining me today I would love to have you I would love to have you come back um and talk about the ways in which we we change these narratives I have so many more questions for you and before you go tell Hmm. us this what advice would you give a creative 
let's say specifically writer in this sense, or maybe not someone who wants to to start on their creative endeavor. And they're like, I'm not sure because no one's going to listen. What is the one piece of advice you would share with them? Every first draft, every first take is necessarily selfish in the sense that it does not take into account what anyone else will think, even the people closest to you. And you hold on to that as a point of intervention and you hold on to that as a space from which to create the starting is the hardest part so if you can just start you will get there um because anything else once it comes in contact with the public is um you know is a revision so let the first draft just be for you and then you can figure out what you want to do with the next let the first draft be selfish. I got a follow up though. I've done all of the follow. I've done all of that, and then I will, mm-hmm. now I have to share it with people, and I have to pitch it because I want the world to see it. Yeah. What do I do then? Like, how do I how do I step in to that world? Yeah. So this is this is the hard part uh, where you take your ego out of any application you do, and you just do the applications because that's the work we do as artists. So we think about the work we do as artists as just the act of creation. But it's also the act of communicating what we've created. So if you think about the communication process as the process of applying or the process of pitching, the process process of publishing, then once you take your ego out that process, it's just part of the part of the administration of the job. Right. That's Mm. just the that's just the admin of the creative side. And if you if you can outsource it. Right. So someone else Mm. is doing some of that work for you. especially if they believe in your art, they can communicate it very well from the perspective of someone who's interested and, and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, that's just the admin. The hard part is done by the time you're, you're thinking of uh, pitching it. Wow. Dr. Tari A. Pickens, thank you so, so much for joining us on Audio Diaspora. You are coming back. (laughs) I promise you I'm going to come back now. Can you come back now? (laughs) (laughs) anytime i'm excited to do so i love that and then i just got to say listeners when i tell you uh dr pickens is the is the is the yoda i don't even know what it is the expert in like being and staying ready i'm not gonna say anything other than that she was ready she got ready and i love her for it she's my new hero (laughs) all right i'll speak with you soon Yes, absolutely. Right. Take care. Take care. Our production team includes Cerise Small, Larissa Witcher, and Eugene Kidd. I'm your host, Christabel Nsiapwadi. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>